Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is December 13th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Senior Video for Acute Otitis Media Discharge Instructions, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor now at the University of Calgary. Hey, Chris, congratulations on the promotion. Oh, buddy, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in the big time now. Ooh, and he's also an avid FOMED supporter and producer through his various online activities, including being on faculty with the SGM. Great to have you back, Chris. Thanks so much, Ken. Always a pleasure. Well, this is going to be the last SGM hop before the end of the year. Got any big plans for the holidays? I'm going to go and leave the cold, I think, this year. Going to go down to Mexico, go down to L.A., visit my brother, uh, getting, getting some sun. Is there any Top Gun uh, partying going on? I don't know. Top Gun parties can be just spur of the moment anytime I'm, I'm in L.A. We've actually let our children know this will be the first time in 24 years I've not volunteered and worked Christmas, and we've already sprung it on them. We are taking them to London, England on a Doctor Who Hogwarts Christmas. Holy moly. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, we're excited. They're excited. But we have a case to get to because this is hot off the press. So give us a case. All right, let's do it. You have an 18-month-old previously healthy female who presents to the emergency department with 24 hours of fever. The past few days, the parents note there has been some rhinorrhea and cough. She looks well, immunizations are up to date, and her examination reveals right-sided acute otitis media. When discussing discharge instructions for her otitis media, you wonder whether having the parents watch a video will be more beneficial for the child's symptoms rather than giving the parents oral instructions with a paper handout. Well, Chris, you know that acute otitis media is the second most common diagnosed illness in children and the most common indication for giving antibiotics. There are significant costs associated with acute otitis media, and parents often bring their children to healthcare providers for evaluation of pain and fever. More than one-third of children experience pain, fever, or both of these symptoms for three to seven days following treatment. And nearly 75% of patients identify pain and disturb sleep as the most important sources of acute otitis media related burden. That's true. And there's significant parental uncertainty regarding treatment of otitis media with less than 30% of US parents receiving instructions on appropriate analgesia for their children. Discharge instruction complexity and inadequate comprehension is associated with medication errors, suboptimal post-discharge care, and an unnecessary recidivism. Medication errors can be reduced using standardized discharge instructions, and parents prefer these to verbal summaries. Video discharge instructions have been shown to be preferred over paper instructions in many pediatric presentations. However, no study has explored the effectiveness of video instructions for acute otitis media until this hot off the press paper. So what's the clinical question then, Chris? Are video discharge instructions superior to a paper handout with respect to the acute otitis media symptom severity score? And what's the reference? Belisle et al. Video discharge instructions for acute otitis media in children, a randomized controlled open label trial. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? Parents of children aged 6 months to 17 years with a chief complaint of otalgia in the setting of upper respiratory tract infection and where the treating physician was at least 50% certain of a clinical diagnosis 
of Otitis Media. Diagnostic certainty was on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale based on the physician's rate of color photos of acute otitis media. And like most research studies, there were some exclusions and I'll list those in the show notes. What was the intervention? Video discharge instructions. And what did they compare it to? Paper-based discharge instructions, identical to the video ones. All right, let's go through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? The acute otitis media sim severity of symptom score on day three post-discharge. And how about their secondary outcomes? There were a few knowledge questionnaire scores, parental satisfaction with the intervention, number of days of missed school or daycare for the child and work for the parent, proportion of children with at least one return visit to a healthcare provider, and proportion of children who received analgesia. Well, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means I have one of the authors with us. And you might notice from the audio quality, I'm doing this in the field. We are doing this on site. We have Dr. Naveen Punai, and I'm in his office right now. He is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Children's Hospital at London Health Science Center. He's also an associate professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at Western University, Canadian Association of Pediatric Health Center project lead for pediatric pain assessment. And he's also, and this really got my nerd juice going, Oh, he's cross-appointed to the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. I'm in Nerdvana. Well, actually, I'm in Naveen's office. Welcome to the SGEM, Naveen. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here. Yeah, you've, you've been on the SGEM before. You were on SGEM number 177, discussing POCUS for diagnosing pediatric fractures. Yes, I have, Ken, and it's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back, Naveen, but you actually weren't supposed to be on this episode. We had the lead author, Dr. Sheena Belial. How did you end up taking her spot, Naveen? Well, as fate would have it, uh, Sheena is uh, about to have a baby. And, well, I was the lead author on the study in terms of being the senior author. So I was more than happy to fill in for her with her permission. Yeah, you were kind enough to step in as the senior author, but we want to give a great big shout out to uh, Dr. Belial for doing this study and getting it done, and we will have you back. All right, so um, this episode, we're going to be talking not about pediatric fractures. We're going to be talking about acute otitis media, and there are a number of different guidelines out there for acute otitis media. Naveen, do you have a favorite one that you like? Yes, I do, Ken. It's actually the Canadian Pediatric Society guideline. I like that one because, well, it's Canadian, but also because it's pretty easy to follow. You could have said because it's Canadian, eh? Because it's Canadian, eh? That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I'll list some of the other guidelines that we have from around the world so you can compare them yourselves. But can you take us through the Canadian Pediatric Society's algorithm for the management of acute otitis media in children over the age of six months? Sure, Ken. And I will uh, emphasize that it is for kids over the age of six months. And basically, the, the three take-home points from this algorithm are that if the child has a perforated tympanic membrane and there's purulent discharge coming out, then we treat with antibiotics for 10 days. But then they make a distinction between mildly ill, so mild ear pain and a temperature less than 39 degrees and within 48 hours of illness. And in those kids, you could sort of have a watch and waitful approach where the parents would observe the child for 24 to 48 hours and bring them back uh, if they weren't getting better. And during that time, they need to provide analgesia. 
The moderate or severely ill kids, these are the patients who have a temperature at least 39 degrees, have a prolonged duration of symptoms of more than 48 hours, and are having a lot of difficulty with pain. And they all get treated with antibiotics. 10 days if they're less than, six, less than two years, and five days if they're at least two years of age. Now I'm going to just uh, clarify something there. That's 39 degrees Celsius, because we do have some American listeners who apparently don't do metric. And I don't know what that translates to, but it's a hundred and something Fahrenheit, wouldn't it be? I think so. Something, but you know, until they get with the metric system, 39 degrees Celsius is a fever. That's right. Thanks, Naveen. For your first line antimicrobial agent, are you an amoxyl 75 to 90 milligrams per kilo per day divided BID or twice daily? Or are you a lower dose divided TID person? Yeah, tough decision. And as Ken can see by the pictures in my office, I have young children myself. And I know with two working parents, giving an antibiotic three times a day can be tough. So for that reason, I prefer the BID or twice a day dosing with 75 to 90 milligrams per kilogram. That's a beautiful example of the practical application of the literature because the literature informs our care and it guides our care, but it doesn't dictate our care. And you're in the unique position of being an expert in biostatistics and epidemiology and reviewing the literature and a clinician, but you're also a parent. And so you go, yeah, twice a day versus three times a day. Yeah, I'm going to go with the twice a day. But, you know, we talked about how many milligrams per kilogram per day. Do you have a maximum dose of amoxicillin that you would give in a day? Sure, I would say that would be 1.5 grams or 1,500 milligrams a day. All right. So can you give the paper's conclusions that you and Dr. Belial and your team came up with? Sure. So our conclusions were in children of parents with acute otitis media who watched a five-minute video in the ED detailing the identification and management of pain and fever experienced a clinically important and statistically significant decrease in symptomatology compared to a paper handout. All right, we're going to go through a quality checklist. And by we, I mean Chris and I. You sit back and relax, and we'll bring you back for a nerdy section after we go through the checklist and go through some of the key results. Chris, ready to go on that checklist of 11 questions? Let's do it. Boom, let's do it. One, are these ED patients? They are. Did they randomize them adequately? Yes, they did. They used a centralized computer-based service that randomized participants to either video or paper-based discharge instructions using permuted block sizes of four to six. Did they conceal the randomization? They did. Did they do an ITT? They did. All right. Were they recruited consecutively? No. Participants were recruited from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week. Were both groups similar? Unsure. There did seem to be more caregivers with a lower baseline educational level in the paper instruction group. Were they unaware of their group allocation? No, they were not. Did they treat everybody equally? They did. Was follow-up complete? No, follow-up was 70% in the video group and 65% in the paper handout group. Do you think they considered all patient-important outcomes? Yeah, I think so. All right, and the 11th question, was the treatment effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? It was. All right, the key results. They got over 5,000 parents screened for eligibility of their children, and then 219 were randomized and analyzed. 149 completed the primary outcome, children included. It was about a 50-50 split between females and males, and the overall mean age was 2.9 years, and about 20% were not offered analgesia prior to arrival, and there were no crossovers in this trial. 
All right, so that's the background, sort of the demographics of the results. What was the key result, Chris? The acute otitis media severity of symptom score was significantly lower on day three in the video group. All right, let's drill down on that. So the score at day three was the primary outcome. Can you give us a little bit more detail? Yeah, so in the video group on day three, the severity of symptom score was one, and this is a score that comes between zero and 14, and we'll link it in the show notes. So it was one in the video group versus three in the paper group for a p-value of 0.004, even after adjusting for pre-intervention severity of symptom and medication use, analgesics and antibiotics. Yeah, and that severity score goes from 0 to 14 with the higher scores indicating greater symptom severity. How about all those secondary outcomes that you had mentioned? There were no significant differences in the secondary outcomes. All right, Naveen, here we go. We got 10 nerdy questions for you to go through to help us better understand this study that you and your team put together. Chris and I will alternate, but he's got the first question. All right, Naveen. So let's talk about the kids in this study first. So you included children aged six months to 17 years of age. There's a big difference between an infant and a teenager. Why not just limit it to children under five years old? So that's definitely true, Chris. Uh, young children are quite different from teenagers, uh, even though my young one acts like a teenager sometimes. We decided to cast a wide net to be more instead of less inclusive. Older children still do suffer from otitis media, and inclusion of these individuals extends the generalizability of our findings. As someone who's had both infants and teenagers, and now a non-teenager, somebody beyond the teenage years, yes, there is a difference between young children and teenagers. Our second question, Naveen, is the diagnosis of acute otitis media. It can be a bit tricky. Uh, you included patients that the physician was 50% certain, it's almost like a coin toss, uh, and they used a 100 millimeter visual analog scale to define that clinical certainty. That was based on color photos that they were given, and I'll include those color photos in the show notes. They showed four pictures of the tympanic membrane, and this was from a previously published diagnostic criteria. Why didn't you use something more objective in a criteria like uh, tympanometry or an acoustic reflectometry to increase the diagnostic certainty. So in an ideal world, we would have been able to use tympanometry or acoustic reflectometry. However, these tools, unfortunately, they're not available in our emergency department. Yeah, they're not available in our emergency department either. And you may have noticed how I stumbled through pronouncing those names, probably because I'm not familiar with those devices and using them on a daily basis. Yeah, we don't have those either. So I, I think that this, this study is much more practical that way. I'm guessing most emergency departments don't have this. So the next question is the convenience sample. Recruitment was done seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We understand the realities of conducting research and having someone available 24 hours a day. However, do you think parents that present overnight with sick kids are different than those who present during the day? It's a good question. It's possible that children that present in the middle of the night are experiencing more pain than those that present during daytime or even evening hours. But it's more likely, I can say with more confidence, that the pain they're experiencing is disruptive to their sleep, and perhaps more so their parents' sleep. So parents that present with their child overnight, they may process discharge information quite differently than daytime hours. All right, let's get to the fourth point. This is about being a single tertiary pediatric center, which we are recording in right now. This single center 
done in a pediatric emergency department. Do you think that this has external validity? Can it be extrapolated to other pediatric emergency departments in Canada or internationally? I think this data can certainly be extrapolated to other Canadian pediatric EDs, as other centers are likely to have populations very similar to ours. However, further study would really need to be undertaken to determine if that data would be applicable to international populations or different languages or different cultures. We had to exclude non-English speaking populations for feasibility purposes. So this study essentially would have to be repeated, including those speaking other languages to be able to confidently say that the data can apply more broadly. Well, I mean, in addition, I've got to put on my rural hat because well, I work rurally, mainly in community rural uh, places, and we see adults and children. Do you think these results would apply to non-pediatric community rural departments? So I think these results would definitely apply to rural community EDs, uh, particularly ED pediatric patients of English-speaking families. Next, I want to talk about the education level. The parents in your study were very well educated, more than 70% having at least a college education. How do you think this could have impacted your results? So I think this may have contributed to the reason why we saw no difference in knowledge acquisition between groups. Generally, both groups were highly informed regarding otitis media at baseline. Well, this leads right into question number six, because this is about health literacy. You used a grade eight level for literacy, and less than 5% of your population reported elementary school only. Now, I've conducted some research looking into rural populations and found 40% of adults attending a number of rural emergency departments had limited health literacy defined as below the ninth grade level. This has me concerned that the video and the paper discharge instructions may not be understandable to significant part of rural ED patients. This is a valid concern, and I would wonder what's provided for discharge instructions in these rural EDs. It may be possible that, much like many EDs, almost 30% of patients with otitis media are not provided any instruction on pain management. So potentially providing a video, even if it's slightly above their educational level, may be better than what's currently done. Of course, the best case scenario would be to develop a video targeting caregivers with minimal or no education. Yeah, I agree. I think that what you're doing is probably still a lot better than the nothing that happens for many patients, unfortunately. The seventh question is about exclusion of non-English speaking patients, which you've kind of talked about a little bit already. You screened over 5,300 patients and almost 5,000 did not meet inclusion criteria. How many of these were because of non-English speaking parents? And did they have different demographics than the English speaking parents? If they had lower health literacy, this cohort could be the group to benefit more from improved discharge instructions as opposed to the English-speaking, highly educated parents. Yes, I fully agree, Chris. Uh, the vast majority of patients screened were actually excluded because they didn't have a diagnosis of otitis media. A small percentage were excluded because of non-English-speaking parents. However, we didn't collect demographic data on non-eligible patients. All right, Naveen, let's talk about this scoring system that you had. Could you explain it to the SGEMers? Because you state that it has been validated and provide a reference for that. And that's Hoberman et al. back in the New England Journal of Medicine 2011. I pulled the study. You know, I have a problem. I, you know, I'm skeptical. So I pulled the actual study and it was done in children under the age of two. 
and your study cohort had a mean age of 2.9 years. Has this scoring system been validated in children over the age of two? Okay, Ken, so to answer your first question, the acute otitis media severity of symptom score is a seven question survey that assesses the child's symptom over the last 24 hours as reported by the caregiver. Therefore, it reflects their perception of their child's symptomatology. The questions inquire about things like crying, ability to sleep, appetite, and activity level. The AOMSOS has been validated for use in children two years and under, you are correct. So a noteworthy limitation of our study is that we extrapolated the use of this tool to older kids. However, the AOMSOS was the best tool we had given that there's no tool validated for the use in older children. Thanks, Naveen. I'm going to ask another question kind of about the SOS as well. So you state in the conclusions that this is both a statistically significant and a clinically significant change in scores on day three. And that's really important for the listeners, the, the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance, and we want both those things. However, if patients were just eating a bit less on day three, the scores would be one versus two in the groups instead of one versus three. And would this really be a clinically significant impact? I would argue that a difference in any one of the AOMSOS survey questions is a clinically significant change, given the impact of these behavioral changes on the family, the level of stress experienced by the caregiver, and the comfort of the child. Well, I'm going to ask one more question in this area. You had parents complete this score only on the first three days, with the primary outcome being the score on day three. Why did you pick day three, and why not score it for the duration of the suggested length of treatment, which can be anywhere from five days to 10 days? That's a great question, Ken. We chose day three as our primary outcome because the AOM symptomatology generally undergoes the greatest change over the first three days of illness. Additionally, one of the biggest challenge of conducting studies such as this is loss to follow-up. We anticipated loss to follow-up would be too great if we attempted to follow participants for longer than three days. That leads right into the next question, which is the loss to follow-up. So we typically like to see at least 80% of patients included in the analysis in a study. In other words, less than 20% loss to follow-up. You anticipated a high loss to follow-up in your power calculation and were correct with only 68% of patients in the trial completing the primary outcome of follow-up at three days. How do you think losing almost one-third of the patients could impact the results in their interpretation? Well, the general thinking is that participants lost a follow-up did not actually influence the results. However, it's entirely possible that parents who followed up may have been more satisfied with their care and may have been more likely to report lower symptom scores. And this would bias us away from our null hypothesis of no difference. All right, I had one more question because we like to have 10 questions. And usually we throw out something. If we don't have 10 questions, we only have nine, we'll say something like, is there anything else you want to say about your study? But this one, I noticed that you offered a $5 gift card as compensation for this study. And both Chris and I were wondering, was this a Timmy's gift card? Unfortunately not, Ken. It was actually a Starbucks gift card. And the Ooh, only reason for that... Fancy. That's right. The only reason for that is because they had, at the time, some greater flexibility in emailing those types of gift cards. Uh, well, that I, I mean, I, I'm sure the readers of this hot-off-the-press episode were thinking, was it a Tim Hortons card or was it a Starbucks card to get the parents involved in this? Anyways, those were the 10 nerdy questions we had for you but we will give you an open-ended opportunity. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk 
about this study? Sure. You know, the findings of this study indirectly speak to the need to address children's pain, both in the ED and post-discharge. We've done our best to translate what is already known about how to manage the pain of otitis media into what we hope is practice-changing discharge instructions. Well, thank you very much for answering our nerdy questions. Now we're going to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SJAM's conclusions. We generally agree with the author's conclusions. All right, and Chris, can you give us an SJAM bottom line? Consider using video discharge instructions for parents of children with acute otitis media. And can you resolve the case? After a brief discussion with the parent, you have them watch a video of discharge instructions for their child. You then go see another patient and return and answer their questions prior to their discharge. And Chris, how are you going to take this new paper that's hot off the press and apply it clinically? Well, this study provides support for use of video discharge instructions for acute otitis media, and I actually might just start having patients watch this Vimeo video that this, that's online. And we're going to include a link to the video. It's, uh, it'll be in the show notes. So if you want access to this five-minute video, you can get it by logging on to the SGEM and checking out this hot-off-the-press episode. Now, the final part that we put in here from our critical appraisal is to give listeners some idea of how we would talk to the patients, or in this case, the parents. And because we have a pediatric emergency medicine expert with us, Naveen, what would you say to the parents? So I would tell them that your child has an ear infection, and it's been shown that your child's pain and symptoms will be better managed three days after discharge if we have you watch a five-minute video about ear infection treatment before you leave. We'll also give you the video link so you can watch it again and again at home if you wish. And I'll answer any questions you have after watching prior to your discharge. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest. And we had two questions from the live show at Kawartha Emergency Medicine Conference in Peterborough recently. Now, many people knew the answer, and I gave some prizes out at the conference. But the answer to that trivia question was the radiation dose from a CTPA to the maternal breast can increase the risk of breast cancer for a 25-year-old woman by about 1.5%. But the second question, this was much harder. That question was, who is the most famous Peterborough Pete to go on and have the most successful NHL career? Now, the key to getting this question correct is that it did not need to be a player. And we had Rachel Vander Hayden, who got the correct answer. And that was Scotty Bowman. He is arguably the most successful Peterborough Pete. He had the most NHL wins in history, over 1,200 in regular season and over 200 in the playoffs. And he has 13 Stanley Cup rings, nine of which as a coach. Chris, what's the question this week? Well, that's hilarious because I immediately thought, we're in Peterborough. You, you have to ask questions about hockey now. <laughs> so this week's question is, who is credited for developing the otoscope? If you know the answer to this SGEM Keener contest question, then send an email to the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on video discharge instructions for acute otitis media? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. And what questions do you have for Sheena, Naveen, and their team? 
Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And don't forget, if you need to pick up a few extra CME credits and you are an AEM subscriber, head over to the homepage and you can get some credits for this. We'll put the process on the SGEM blog. Thank you again, Naveen, for coming back on the SGEM and talking about your hot off the press publication. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Ken and Chris. It was great to be here. Hey, Chris, I'll catch you in 2020 for another SGEM hop. But to finish the show, we need Naveen to give us the SGEM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. All day, all night, all music, radio.